Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. In the setting of the U.S. opioid drug crisis, non-opioid-based analgesic approaches are getting more and more attention. Most approaches rely on the development of ERAS programs that support multimodal therapy and pharmaceuticals. Thus, the topic for today fits nicely into this discussion, as the technique described has the potential to provide long-lasting acute pain management. The audience may wonder why we chose a small, unblinded pilot study to highlight in this podcast. First of all, not to go off on too much of a tangent, I'd like to do a little plug for our research report. This is a new format in Rapham where we force the authors through 600 words, two figures, and six references to have a really focused message. And Dr. Finner and his group certainly did that. But more importantly, this topic is provocative, it's innovative, and it challenges the status quo. Who would have thought 10 years ago that a technology used in chronic pain might one day find a home in perioperative pain management? We love it. We love the provocative nature of it. So we're really excited to discuss this topic here. Today, we're joined by Dr. John Finneran. Dr. Finneran is an associate professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Division of Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain at University of California, San Diego. He completed his residency and fellowship training at UC San Diego and now serves as the Associate Program Director of the UCSD Anesthesiology Residency Program. Dr. Finneran has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles in book chapters. His research areas of interest include regional anesthesia in trauma, in burn populations, phantom limb pain, in cryoneurolysis, and electrical stimulation of peripheral nerves. He is here today to tell us about some of his recent work on cryoneurolysis of peripheral nerves for postoperative pain following split thickness skin grafting in burn patients. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Seitz. It's a pleasure to be here. I think this podcast is a really exciting addition to the journal, and I'm honored to be part of it. Great. So let's get into it. Last year, Dr. Finneran was the lead author in a provocative pilot study evaluating acute pain in patients having split thickness skin grafts involving uh, the lateral thigh. In this study, 12 patients got a local anesthetic lateral femoral cutaneous nerve block to anesthetize the harvest site and a continuous nerve block to anesthetize the burn site if appropriate. The study then randomized six patients to cryoneurolysis of the lateral femicutaneous nerve and six patients to sham. Patients' pain, both worst and average, at the donor site, opioid use, and sleep disturbances were evaluated for up to 21 days. Okay, to start things off, John, can you tell us a little bit about the background idea to use cryoneurolysis as a mechanism for postoperative analgesia? Sure. So we're able to produce anesthesia and analgesia of peripheral nerves with local anesthetics. However, local anesthetic blocks are limited in duration to hours for single injection nerve blocks and days for continuous blocks. Unfortunately, the pain uh, after surgery often lasts for much longer than that. It can be weeks or months. 
This means that patients are often left to rely on opioid analgesics for intense pain that persists beyond the duration of more conventional regional anesthetics. So the goal of cryoneurolysis is to provide a block that lasts much longer than conventional local anesthetic-based regional blocks. The idea of using cold to treat pain is ancient, and it's been utilized by civilizations throughout history. Uh, but cryoneurolysis specifically refers to the application of extreme cold, temperatures below negative 20 degrees Celsius, to peripheral nerves to produce a really long-lasting block. The way that this works is that when nerves are frozen, crystals form within the tissue. Those crystals cause axonal dam damage, which results in Wallerian degeneration. Now, when the temperature is between negative 20 and negative 100 degrees Celsius, Wallerian degeneration or axonal death dis distal to the site of injury will occur, but the connective tissue around the axons, the endoneurium, perineurium, uh, epineurium remain intact. So those axons are able to regrow and re-innervate that tissue. So what happens is that you get a block that lasts a duration that is proportional to the distance between where you do the cryoneurolysis treatment and where the pain is. And you can actually get a rough estimate of how long that block should last by dividing that distance in millimeters by the rate that or the rate at which axons regrow, which is about one to two millimeters per day, and that will give you a uh, block duration in number of days. That's a great background, uh, uh, John. Thank you so much. And 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 actually, I didn't even know about that mechanism. So it's it's uh, really really good to have that as we consider some of some of the results of your study. And just so I can get this right, when I'm at a cocktail party sometime, uh, you had mentioned that cold therapy goes back to ancient times. I read somewhere, and I don't. I just want to see if, if this is right. If, if you agree, was it Hippocrates who used snow? It applied to wounds uh, first. Is that is that true, or is that just kind of like a a, a bad rumor? I, I, I don't want to go on record as <laughs> as a historian uh, for regional anesthesia, uh, but I, I think that it's been documented uh, that both ancient Greeks and ancient Egyptians uh, applied snow to uh, wounds to to treat pain. So we're in good company then. Uh, now, so, so, so like, I'm kind of curious, um, you're, you're, a, an acute pain physician, you're, you're doing general anesthesia, you're involved with regional, like what, does something happen one day and you go, wow, I gotta, I gotta like get a probe and start like, like cooling stuff. Like what was the first thing that happened that made you think, my, my gosh, we've got something here. We've been doing uh, ultrasound guided cryoneurolysis of peripheral nerves at UC San Diego for about six years now. And Really what happened is we knew that there were cryoneurolysis probes that were available for percutaneous cryoneurolysis, and we had the ultrasound skills to place those probes adjacent to peripheral nerves, and we were looking for methods to prolong blocks beyond the duration of conventional local anesthetic-based peripheral nerve blocks. And so it was really the confluence of having the skills to precisely place a 
a cryoneurolysis probe adjacent to a nerve with the availability of cryoneurolysis probes that could be inserted percutaneously. That's, and I'll summarize literally what you just said. It's called innovation. So that's what's so exciting here. And I, this is a great, uh, I think, lesson for our residents and our, our, our uh, medical students who may be listening to this podcast. You just heard it right there. Uh, it's building on, on, on different building, it's putting built, different building blocks together to take it to that next level. And, 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 and getting back to the original comment I made about our question I asked about why we are highlighting uh, a small pilot studies just because of this issue. This is called innovation. This is exciting. So thank you for that for that background. Okay, so I, I did want to ask you, uh, John, about the the NUS procedure, the pectus um, repair. Uh, there's a lot of attention recently uh, around using cryoneurolysis for the intercostal nerve in this setting. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that from your experience or if you're doing it at your institution. Yes. So intercostal cryoneurolysis has been used for the NUS procedure or pectus excavatum repair uh, in, in a variety of ways. So it has been done with surgeons performing open intercostal cryoneurolysis. It's been performed with thoracoscopic cryoneurolysis, again, done by the surgeon in the operating room. And then uh, there are very recent reports of using ultrasound-guided intercostal cryoneurolysis. So there were some really exciting reports comparing thoracoscopic cryoneurolysis to uh, uh, thoracic epidurals, which is sort of the gold standard for analgesia after these surgeries, uh, that showed that there was a decreased length of stay when surgeons did the cryoneurolysis, uh, but there was a dramatic increase in the intraoperative time. As you can imagine, uh, when you're doing this on multiple nerves, spending several minutes per nerve, it really increases the time that you spend in the OR. Uh, so there was a very recent comparison that was just done this year comparing intercostal cryoneurolysis or, or percutaneously inserted cryoprobes to do intercostal cryoneurolysis to the thoracoscopic uh, cryoneurolysis um, and actually showed in, improved outcomes with the uh, ultrasound-guided percutaneous cryoneurolysis. Um, we don't do nest procedures at uh, my institution. They're done at our children's hospital, but I don't practice there. Um, I have, I do have experience doing uh, ultrasound-guided percutaneous intercostal cryoneurolysis for uh, both rib fractures and for post-mastectomy pain. So it's definitely something that we're doing, and it's a really exciting area of regional anesthesia, I think. Yeah, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the, the reason why it's super exciting is that you get analgesia for up to s six weeks or, or a very long period, correct? Exactly. Just like we discussed before, the duration of analgesia, at least theoretically, should be proportional to the distance between where you perform the cryoneurolysis and where the site of pain is. So it can be anywhere from weeks to a couple of months of analgesia that can be produced by this. And especially for something like a NUS procedure, the duration of the pain is weeks to months. Right. Um, but that's also true of a lot of surgeries that we do. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to give you a tough question now. Um, so uh, the skeptic of your work uh, might highlight that this technology is limited to sensory nerves. And now you probably wouldn't want to cryoneurolyze uh, a complex nerve with motor fibers for obvious reasons. Uh, 
is it reasonable to expect that this technology or this application will grow in a meaningful way if you're limited to just purely sensory nerves like the lateral femicutaneous nerve? I think so. I think it's a little bit more complicated than simply saying cryoneurolysis is only applicable for sensory-only nerves. We just discussed the use for intercostal nerves, and intercostal nerves are mixed nerves. Now, there's a big difference between the motor component of an intercostal nerve and the motor component of a femoral nerve, Um, but that at least goes to show that there is nothing in principle that prevents you from using cryoneurolysis for for any mixed nerve. Now, we chose the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve because this is actually something that is very commonly done at our institution. We're able to block the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve uh, and then map out its distribution on the lateral thigh so that the surgeons can confine uh, their skin graft to that location. Um, I think that there is a lot of possibility for expanding cryoneurolysis to other nerves. What we might need to do when targeting nerves that have significant motor component is target their very distal branches. For example, we mentioned the femoral nerve. Now, giving someone quadriceps weakness for three months is certainly not ideal. Although we have done femoral and sciatic uh, cryoneurolysis for lower extremity amputations, uh, and also we've done cryoneurolysis of the brachial plexus and its terminal branches for upper extremity amputations. But there has been reports in the chronic pain literature of performing cryoneurolysis of the very distal branches of the femoral nerve, namely the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve, and showing that it produces analgesia for patients with uh, chronic knee osteoarthritis pain. So I think that perhaps doing cryoneurolysis of the very distal branches of these nerves may be the route that we take. Well, that's, that's just, that's just like super exciting. And I, 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 I I mean, and and to hear you talk about these other applications that you're already doing, it's not even really aspirational. You're actually uh, doing it live. What about costs, John? It it, it sounds super expensive. And I assume our, our listeners are are like, well, this is going to be a super expensive and probably, probably preclusionary in this kind of tight budgetary environment. What do you, what do you say to that? Sure. So cryoneurolysis devices fall into two basic categories. There's console-based cryoneurolysis devices and handheld cryoneurolysis devices. So console-based cryoneurolysis devices tend to be more expensive, but have reusable probes that can be autoclaved. So the cost is a relatively large upfront cost, usually measured in the tens of thousands of dollars, but then the cost per treatment is very low after that. On the other end of the spectrum, the handheld cryoneurolysis devices are relatively inexpensive, but they usually have disposable probes that are much more expensive than simply autoclaving a, a probe that you're going to reuse many times. So the co- there is a cost that is upfront and there is a cost with each treatment um, but I think that the cost has to be you know, measured against the benefit that we see. And if we can provide a significant amount of analgesia, uh, I, I think that that can justify that cost. 
And I would, I would add that uh, the value equation that we talk about so much in regional anesthesia and pain medicine, the journal, uh, is important here. And value is outcomes over costs. And the currency right now that everyone's using for outcomes is, is length of stay because of the bed crisis that's ongoing, uh, the nursing shortages, uh, the overwhelmed uh, COVID situation. So anything that any of us can do uh, to, to decrease length of stay uh, is is a huge a huge thing, and the value goes way up currently. So so conceivably, if you provide uh, you know really profound analgesia, uh, you would facilitate uh, discharge, perhaps. Yeah, and we talked about the fact that uh, thoracic epidurals were associated with a longer length of stay than inter than intercostal cryonuralysis for the NUS procedure. So if we're able to provide patients very good analgesia without literally tethering them to the hospital by a thoracic epidural or a continuous peripheral nerve block, we may be able to free up beds, which is very important in, in the setting of COVID. Absolutely. All right, great. So now on to your results. Can you summarize your findings regarding the overall efficacy of the cryoneurolysis for the lateral femicutaneous nerve? Absolutely. So to start off, this was a pilot study not meant to guide clinical care. What we found was that we were able to successfully block the lateral femicutaneous nerve in all of our participants and map out the distribution for the lateral femicutaneous nerve in all of the participants. With regards to the active versus sham groups, the active group had lower average and pain scores during the first week following surgery, as well as decreased opioid consumption during the first week following surgery, and fewer sleep disturbances due to pain on the first and second nights following surgery. By the end of the first week, the pain scores and opioid consumption were much closer between the two groups. And by the end of the second week following surgery, the differences were pretty minimal. So this probably suggests that the duration of the really intense pain following this surgery is really limited to that first week. Great. And I, I want to make a note for our readers here uh, about uh, p-values and statistical tests. And I and John, I don't know if we went back and forth when we were going through the revisions when you submitted this about uh p-values, but I like how this manuscript ended up with uh, more of a descriptive feel to it, given that it was a pilot study. I think the tendency for a lot of authors is they really feel like they they have to put a p-value on, on everything and they got to compare everything and statistical significance, et cetera. But if you're just exploring a, a new innovative technique, it's more than appropriate usually just to just provide the raw data for descriptive um, consumption by by the by the readership, and I love how you did that. And I, I I don't I don't I forget if we if we had to argue about that at all during the review process, but uh, it came out nice, and I don't. <laughs> um, so I, I, I totally agree. If we're not going to do a priori uh, statistical analysis to determine the number of subjects that we need in a study and simply choose a convenient sample, then it really isn't appropriate to apply those statistics that we are so used to seeing in most manuscripts. Well said. Now, in terms of uh, complications, uh, most of our listeners will be concerned about the idea of inducing a nerve injury in, a, in subsequent neuropathic pain, the syndrome, neuropathic pain syndrome. 
and you mentioned before that the mechanism of how this works is actually to induce a nerve injury. And uh, in, in my understanding, of, like, per, per your discussion before and what I've read, cryoneurolysis involves the application of cold that results in the uh, neuropraxia and cell, cell, cell death on some, on some levels. And so the, the timing of the sensory return is really dependent on the rate and extent of, of axon regeneration, as you mentioned. This sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. And, uh, and I assume a lot of people listening to this are, are saying, there's no way I'm going to start freezing nerves and killing cells and hoping they grow back. So can you speak to that? And also uh, about the numbers needed to treat to really tease out what the complication rate would be? Certainly. Uh, so this is a very common question that we get from patients and surgeons and our anesthesia colleagues. And what the literature really shows is that it's important to distinguish open surgical cryoneurolysis from percutaneous cryoneurolysis, which is what we do. Open surgical cryoneurolysis is generally done by surgeons and it involves varying degrees of exposure and dissection of nerves prior to the application of cold to those nerves. And there have been randomized trials of surgical cryoneurolysis that have shown an increase in neuropathic pain following surgery. Specifically, they were intercostal cryoneurolysis applied intraoperatively by surgeons doing thoracotomies. And essentially what they did was dissect out the intercostal nerve, dissect it away from the surrounding structures, including the intercostal vein and artery, pick it up with forceps, and then freeze it. And it's been hypothesized that it's really this combination of the mechanical trauma with the freezing having sort of a double crush phenomenon that is what sets these patients up for having neuropathic pain. There haven't been any reports of percutaneously applied cryoneurolysis, at least not to my knowledge, uh, of uh, increases in neuropathic pain. And what's, what's really important is that the temperature that we use for percutaneous cryoneurolysis has to be between negative 20 and negative 100 degrees Celsius. So if you look at the Sunderland grading system for nerve injuries, if, you're, if you are warmer than negative 20 degrees Celsius, you end up with a Sunderland 1 type of nerve injury where you don't get Wallerian degeneration of those axons. If you're colder than negative 100 degrees Celsius, you can end up with a Sunderland grade four or five injury where you can induce neuroma formation, or even if the, if it's, the injury is severe enough, transection of the nerve, if, if you cause severe enough injury to the tissues. But it's sort of that sweet spot of negative 20 to negative 100 where you end up with a Sunderland grade two injury, ideally Wallerian degeneration with intact endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium. So the gases that are normally used for cryoneurolysis are going to be nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide. Whereas if you look at something like tumor cryoablation, they're going to use gases like argon 
or liquid nitrogen, which get much colder than negative 100 degrees. So John, you know, uh, you can disagree with me, but I, I think it's fair to, to say that we don't have enough information at this point in time in terms of sample sizes to really determine the, the rate of postoperative injury uh, to those nerves that it, it develops into a neuropathic uh, uh, pain syndrome. I, I think that that's a reasonable thing to say. We need larger randomized clinical trials to establish both what the clinical effectiveness of these technologies are, as well as what their complication rates are. Okay, well said. Now, the last last question, uh, which, which uh, we always ask and will continue to ask, clearly more work is needed to unpack the potential of this technology and the indications in the acute pain setting. What do you see, John, as promising leads based on your findings and kind of what the next steps are? Well, as we've mentioned, we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic in the United States, and there's a tremendous need for analgesic modalities that can reduce patients' requirement for opioid analgesics. I think that it's very encouraging that the participants in our study who received the active treatment had a decrease in their opioid consumption compared to patients who uh, received the sham treatment. We're also in the midst of a COVID pandemic where it's really critically important to free up as many hospital beds as possible. And as we discussed, there have been studies that showed a decrease in the length of stay in patients who received, uh, in this case, uh, surgical cryoneurolysis. I think that there is much more work to be done in the form of randomized clinical trials, but I think it's very promising that the patients who received the active treatment in this trial had lower pain scores as well as lower opioid consumption. Are you currently working on a study on another nerve for another nerve distribution? We're currently looking at uh, multiple other nerve distributions for cryoneurolysis. We're looking at intercostal cryoneurolysis for postmastectomy pain, intercostal cryoneurolysis for rib fracture pain, cryoneurolysis of the femoral and sciatic nerves for amputation pain. And I think that there's lots of other potential uh, for this technology. Well, fantastic, John. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you who listened in. See you next time.